interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Well, good questions again. You talk about Christians dying and rising in Christ through baptism, and that this practice of dying and rising in Christ is something Christians should do daily. What are some practices you do daily to practice this death and resurrection in Christ? They would be a lot of the same ones that Christians have done for centuries. Um, one of the best dying practices is confession of sin. Uh, a practice that has, alas, become less and less common among many Christians, and especially in church, puzzles me. Confessing sins to God is not only humbling, it's also one of the healthiest things you can possibly do. It's absolutely like taking out the garbage, which you want to do. And uh, confessing sins to God as candidly as you possibly can do it Oh God, um, I've been ignoring Frank because I love I love not being troubled by all his troubles. Oh God, um, I just sidestepped Sarah because Sarah talks to me a little bit longer than I have time for, and I get impatient with her. Oh, God, well, you know how the drill goes. A candid confession of sin is uh, honorable because it trusts God to love you right through it and beyond it and before it. And to reclaim God's grace after confession of sin is a form of rising with Jesus Christ. You rise to new life. Now that you have done the healthy thing of taking out the garbage, you can stand up as a cherished son and daughter of God and go back to your life. Confession of sin, uh, receiving God's grace is a really basic one. Uh, I think that for Christians who are learning the virtues, there are some some crafts to practice. Uh, I'll spend a lot of time this afternoon on one of them, one of them that I find extremely helpful in attempting to forgive somebody who has hurt me. Uh, that will be Exhibit A this afternoon. But there are plenty of others um, for Christians who get irritated by um, long li- by, by long lines at supermarkets. Um, You can choose purposely the longest one and stand in it. Uh, There's something really good about that. If if you've lied to somebody, you can go to that person and say, I'm sorry to tell you that the other day when I said X, that wasn't true. Now, there is a dying with Christ right there. Dallas Willard says in one of his books that um, if you have the God-given courage to do it, to say to somebody, 
When I said to you the other day, X, that wasn't true. If you have the God-given courage to do that, here's, here's how he puts it. It will marvelously enhance your ability to get it right the next time. <laughs> Dying and rising with Christ. Um, when uh, speaking to others who, in your judgment, need um, a tiny bit of rebuke, odd that the New Testament seems to regard rebuke as a common occurrence in the Christian community. We don't do it much. And, of course, the reason we don't do it is that um, we're afraid that if we rebuke somebody, they'll rebuke us, and much better to let the whole thing slide. Uh, we don't rebuke others much because we know they'll get angry, and we don't want them to get angry, and uh, so let the whole thing slide. But, you know, um, there are ways to rebuke that have a lot of grace in them. The principal rule is minimum necessary force. It's just like just war theory. My friend Rich Mao, who was president of Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, uh, once commenting on current Christian practice of um, using the word just in a lot of contexts, and just like to just pray. Uh, Rich says he introduced a class in Christian ethics, which was on the theory of just war, by saying to his class, I'd just like to talk to you about just war. And uh, he said that it had a fine effect. Um, minimum necessary force. Never say more than you need to. Somebody makes a racist remark, of course you don't say to such a person, you just made a racist remark that will totally cut off any possible conversation you might have. You might start with something like, did you hear what you just said? And if they did, they might say, did you think that what I said was racist? And you might say, did you? What you want is for anybody that you're talking to, and this may be a person you deeply love, maybe, you know, a child of yours, or a good friend, or a parent. What you want is for that person to say, without your having to say it. Minimum necessary force, using a lot of questions, um, those are ways of rising with Jesus Christ because they they show that you are committed both to truth and to grace. Both to justice and to peace. Praying for people you don't like very well is a way of dying with Jesus Christ because you'd really like not to think about these people at all. But if you pray for them, uh, and especially for, for the people you find most obnoxious, but have to deal with, to pray for them and uh, to confess to God that you find them obnoxious, I mean, that's part of candor in your prayer to God, but then confess as well that there are undoubtedly uh, 
wonderful graces in this person that you're missing and mean it. I mean, the chances that we are missing uh, good graces in people that we find obnoxious, those chances are high because obnoxiousness generally becomes the only thing we look at after a while. And there may be so much more going on, and there may be redemptive reasons why this person is obnoxious, or at least um, mitigating reasons, more about which a little later. Dying and rising with Christ is a daily occurrence. Uh, one of the most eloquent people on it in the 20th century was C.S. Lewis. Uh, there's, there's lots about it in mere Christianity. There's lots about it in the great divorce. He tells in the great divorce about how there's this one person that needs so much to get rid of a besetting sin and can't let it go, can't let it go, and it becomes a lizard on this person's shoulder and needs to be killed in order for this person to survive. And the question is, will this person have the guts to kill this lizard? That is to let his old self die, in fact, to kill it. Um, another place Lewis talks about how uh, we need to let go and surrender ourselves to God, and we are like people who um, need to throw themselves into the surf of God's unconditional grace, and we keep insisting on having one foot planted firmly in the sand because we dare not entrust ourselves completely to God's grace. Dying and rising is a daily dynamic, a daily challenge. Uh, Lewis says one more time, uh, you give yourself over to God in your morning prayer, you get up, and before you're done shaving, the day has become yours again. So this is a daily drama, and part of the huge adventure of living a right before God. The other question, how does humility play a role in witnessing or conversing with non-Christians who are participating in non-Christian acts? Here's where the whole question of judging and being judgmental comes into play. Jesus says at the beginning of Matthew 7, uh, do not judge, for with the judgment with which you judge, you shall be judged. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus' reason for saying do not judge is extremely practical. Namely, if you do it, people are going to do it right back at you. Judging others is a boomerang that comes right back at you. Haters are often hated. Cruel people are often treated cruelly, as we saw in the French Revolution. Do not judge so that you may not be judged in turn. Jesus can't have met, never determined that what somebody else is doing is wrong. He can't have meant that. Because he himself judges that what other people are doing, like the Pharisees, is wrong all the time. He says, you know, watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, you have to do a little discerning of what's right and wrong, who you can trust and who you can't, in order to do that discernment. Don't throw your pearls before swine. I guess you'll have to know who the swine are. So he can't have meant by do not judge 
never determine that somebody else's acts are wrong. So what did he mean, and how is this relevant to how we treat unbelievers, particularly those who are acting unchristianly? I think it means something like, don't judge anyone in any way that you are not willing to be judged yourself. In other words, this is an instance of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Exhibit A, judge others only in the same way that you are willing to be judged yourself. And I think that this means no hasty judgments, you know, leaping to conclusions about other people's acts. They do something twice and you say you do this all the time. Hasty judgments, leaping to conclusion judgments. We hate being judged that way. Why would we do it to somebody else then? No presumptuous judgments. Thinking we know what somebody else's motives are. Listen in political discourse and you will hear politicians attributing motives to other politicians that they cannot possibly know. The only reason he does this is, and this other this politician making the accusation is looking inside the mind and the heart of his opponent and telling us exactly what's there. He cannot know that. Presumptuous judgments. I know the motives. I know why you did that. No, you don't. And we hate it when people do that to us. Why then would we do it to somebody else? No uncharitable judgments. Putting the worst face on what somebody else has said to us. Putting the worst face on how somebody else treats us. Putting the best face on how we treat them. All of that is uncharitable. And if you know a really charitable Christian person, listen to how they try to find the best reason why somebody may have done what they did. So in talking with non-Christians and how they act, I think that one of the signs of humility in us, which they may very well recognize and which actually may help them on the road to Christ, one of the things that they may notice is that we refuse to be judgmental toward them. We may know perfectly well that what they are doing is wrong. There may even be, after minimum necessary force, there may even be an occasion in which we would say so, but the way we get there is charitable. It's not presumptuous. It's long-suffering. In other words, it shows humility at every step of the way. And in refusing to say to an unbeliever, Anything that sounds peremptory, anything that sounds like it's skipping a step, and instead witnessing in a way that we know is true and that may possibly have resonance with them, when I've been faced with loneliness, I found a lot of refuge in my prayers. When I have felt at times like scum, 
It's helped me so much to believe that God loves me in ways that I cannot even imagine. To tell what has happened in your life, to do so, you know, not exaggeratedly, not at much greater length than the other person can tolerate at this stage of your relationship, to do so in a way that is truthful, humble, has a shot at helping them along the road to Christ. Witnessing needs, this sounds extremely prosaic, witnessing to non-believers for that, you need really good manners. Surprising how much that matters. 